Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Who doesn't expand in nature? Who doesn't understand that connection with nature brings connection to ourselves? Thankfully, more and more people appreciate nature and have started to see it as integral to education. Yes, but who has the courage to start a school with engagement with nature as the basis for all education? Not many, but today's guest, Marcia Osos, is one such person. I believe she embodies a core feature of holistic education. Marcia is co-founder of the John Muir Magnet School in Ashland, Oregon, a K-8 natural sciences and outdoor art school where students spend at least one day a week outdoors and often comment that it feels more like a family than a school. Her students stretch their personal boundaries through empowering personal and group challenges, hands-on projects, and backpacking trips where they learn both self and team reliance. She's highly involved in holistic education on many levels and is proud and grateful to have collaborated with many Southern Oregon University colleagues in their recent book, Imagine a Place, Stories from Middle Grades Educators. Her personal passions include multi-day rafting trips, biking, backcountry snowboarding, backpacking, gardening, and just about everything outdoors. This fuels her desire and her fire for getting students outside as much as possible and helping them soulfully connect to the natural world. So, um... I uh, attended your uh, workshop seminar this morning and I was blown away in such a great way because I've been a practitioner and author in terms of uh, activities that bring forth uh, our sense of who we are and even our academic skills. And you seem to have taken that to a degree I never did. So what pulls you? What pulls you there? You know, I have a quote that I don't know who said, but uh, the quote that says that uh, we do not quit playing because we grow old. George Bernard Shaw. That is. You're correct. That I is. know. Yes. yes. I have it. It's, of, it's in my book. Nice. But yes. of course, we know that we all need to keep playing. And to me, that is, and I'm not even finishing the quote, but that is my passion. Um, so playfulness. And it's, I feel like... We can do that everywhere. We can bring it everywhere and into everything we do. And then we will never grow old. So you do it through these incredibly intelligent icebreakers that develop community, that uh, call forth our different skill sets. Are you evaluating students while you do that? I don't mean in some sort of distant way, but are you getting a meaningful sense of their strengths, their weaknesses, their ways of interacting? You're getting all those things that you never – people that – are so focused on data and spreadsheets and assessment, the things that you can't always really show, but it's so incredibly 
present and prevalent. And yes, yeah, sometimes I'm just playing with them. Other times I'm spying a little bit to see who I should put in a tent group or in a hiking group or who might work well together, who might have certain leadership capabilities or who might not know how to step back and not always be the leader. And so I think I am constantly looking at that, all the layers involved with our personalities. And when it's a group challenge, I think the most important part is recognizing that we're all trying to be successful as a group, but that sometimes we have to take a step outside of our comfort zone to help someone else do the same. The um, uh, I'm trying to formulate this question. The um, do you do you I know do you ever choose certain games because you want to either see a certain thing among, with a student or among students or as a way to further, say, interpersonal skill building or something like that? Definitely. I think you can be super strategic with that. I think that when I know that my group needs healing in a certain area, I can sneak in a game that I know will incorporate that healing, but it's not, I'm not going to directly lecture it. I'm not going to point it out even. It's going to be more of a self-discovery, just inquiry-based kind of thing. And as I facilitate it, asking them questions of what came up for them, what was challenging, what are they growing through this, um, just most definitely. So you are working at the John Muir, uh, in, do you call it an outdoor school? We are, in, our focus is on the outdoors. So we teach all, we have to teach a lot of the same state standards, national standards, but we always get to say that how we teach is up to us. So we, our kids are outside at least one day a week, usually up to about 50 days a year, though. So it's more than that. So this is an Oregon charter school. It is not. It's a public school, but we are a magnet school with our draw towards the outdoors and natural sciences and arts. So tell us, how do you bring science, math, the, the subjects parents have so much concern about, to the children through the outdoors? And then also tell us how you let the parents believe in that. Yeah, I find it easier to ask them to just kind of hang on and, and, and watch this and see what happens. Yeah, I can give you some samples of lessons. Um, so any, any, anybody who's going to go on a hike would want to know, I don't know, how long would it take to get there? Anything like that. So an example would be a pacing with math and science. And I can tie in reading, reading a topographic map, reading contour lines, checking the weather, checking your physical abilities, low, knowing the lowest common denominator of our group in terms of physical needs and abilities, and starting kids with measuring down the hallway as simplistically as that gets and measuring their pace after predicting it. And then they can graph it and chart it and measure everybody's. Then I can take them to uneven terrain in inclement weather, put a pack on their back, take them downhill, take them with youngers, with olders, and, and have them be just understand the actual application of it. We've done things for backpacking trips where we were looking at different camp stoves and different gear that we wanted the kids to realize why we purchased which gear. We've had them do science experiments, how long it takes to boil water with the lid off, with the lid on, if you're in the wind, if you're not in the wind, if your fuel canister is almost empty, if it's brand new and full, all of these things so that rather than me standing up there and teaching them here is how you do this, here is how you backpack, letting them just discover everything. And then again, as their self-confidence is building, there it spills over into everything it spills over into their math it spills over into risk taking into trusting their colleagues and their peers and just trying new things and working together and problem solving 
And so Renato is just turning the page and looking at number 18. We're figuring it out. (laughs) (laughs) That's, um, that's, I mean, it sounds revolutionary, but it also sounds absolutely classical in in terms of how we grow, how we learn, how we know ourselves. To me, sometimes it just feels like a no-brainer. It's how we would want to be taught. And it is how we know ourselves. I know that if we're going to do that, any of that kind of stuff, anything, um, even learn how to stay dry out in the rain for a few days, then we have to do it. And we can't simply have someone tell us their experience because their experience is theirs. So for I'm sure for some students, although they're probably self-selecting, the, some of the challenges are really quite hard. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with that when a student is telling you the challenge is overwhelming, even if it might not be from your perspective? Yeah, that's where we get to use our, our heart and our gifts. I had a student just yesterday in the mountains with those physical symptoms of a tummy ache and a headache, and, a, and, and I could tell darn well that it wasn't. I could tell she was quite nervous. She, she was new to the school. She was more comparing herself to returners who seemed comfortable and confident. She knew she wasn't. And I knew it was manifesting in this way, but I knew that all I needed to really do was distract her and focus on her strengths. And by doing that in just a little bit of time, there was no headache anymore. There was no tummy ache anymore. It was more of, wow, really? We can do this? And wow, look at this. Here's this, here's this beautiful insect over here. And just it just was no longer an issue. So that's one small example. But uh-huh. So you find a student's strength. Yeah. And then you participate in the strength with them. And then once they feel, okay, I've, I've actualized that strength, yeah. then they can go more towards things that they don't think they can do. Yep. And I always tell them, you know, every time what you're doing is you're filling your, your little suitcases that you carry with you. You get to take them everywhere. They don't, they don't weigh you down. They're your bag of tricks. And every day you're filling them up more and more and you take them into the next experience. And now you have all these things you're taking with you. So even a student who's been in our school for nine years who might be able to hike the 50-mile trip that we're about to do, no problem. Well, then that student's going to take on a bunch of extra, extra, you know, leadership roles, just extra passion. They know that they're going to help me focus on a student who doesn't have the experience and potentially not the self-esteem to do it either and that we're going to work together to make sure that we get everyone down this trail whatever that may be and that as soon as anybody says they're not ready to move on then we're in the we're always in it together but then we really are then we work together and see how 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 we can push people but never too far you know outside their comfort zone because they never they'll limit themselves often by not knowing what they are capable of doing but then just little bits little bits little bits so so tell us a little bit more about John Muir's school. How, how many students are in it? Around 130. It's a lottery-based school simply because there's only five teachers and only so much room. Um, we were originally four teachers. We are K-8. And so with the five, what we've, what we've done to be able to expand the school is we, we just took in a larger group that's kind of moving up through the school, but we teach multi-age. And I think that I always think about us as adults, none of us, get married at the same time, have kids at the same time. It doesn't work like that. So I don't know why we tell children that life works like that and send these messages. So multi-age teaching to me would be another no-brainer and the only way I could ever do it. Um, so our school has a, has mixed grades, K-1, and then a 2-3 and a 4-5. And right this year we have a straight 6, which is moving up. And then I teach the 7th, 8th. And we get kids outside like I said, at least one day a week. Um, our kindergartners go to the park every week. If not other places, we all have um, other groups that we collaborate with and places we go and we do stewardship. 
but ideally our goal is that every child at every age is comfortable sitting in the woods, being present, journaling, observing. Sometimes that's spiritual, sometimes it's scientific, but we don't want to see more and more people that run from the car to the store with their heads covered. I want to see them catching snowflakes on their tongues and being comfortable outside. <laughs> and Yeah, so our hope is that they're learning how to think for themselves. So in your 7-8, are most of those kids have been through the earlier grades or do you get new, uh, new people in the 7-8 uh, classroom? Both. This year I happened to have a bunch of families actually move away, about four or five that that actually moved out of state. So I had openings. So I've got some new students in and I've had students that have been on the wait list for eight years that have been able to get in. And that just varies year to year. But it's a real nice mix because the returners really help to just kind of teach them the culture and the expectation. Um, Our school is really familial. It's very, very much like a family. Just like if we were going to go on an expedition for a month together, there really is no room for a butthead. Nobody's going to be that person because we're cooking together, we're camping together, we're playing together, and it just it doesn't really work to be that person. So it helps, I find that it helps everybody to be their best self, kind of in an almost social obligation type of a way. And so we have, we have a lot of little mantras that we do. We, we have a mantra where we always say, you know, what if everyone did as I am doing? And that goes both positive and negative. So that, that can go, that's a great one to think about. And um, yeah, we have a lot of those. And so there's a staff cohesion and staff uh, consistency. That uh, by that I mean, you have the same staff year after year. You know, we've had a, quite a bit of turnover. I'm the only f- co-founder left. The others did retire. Oh, you're and, a founder. Yeah, one of. Oh my gosh. With humility, um, co-founder. But the others were. It was the, towards the end of their career, and so they have moved on. And. Um, one is still teaching locally. She's also about to retire. And um, and then we, we're stoked when we can keep our educational assistants. We're in our 11th year. And I think one of my co-teachers who's now sixth grade, I think he's been with us for six years. And the others are on their third year. Um, but we just happen to have some turnover. So we have a real solid team now. Great, great team. It must take quite a lot, though, to create such a team because the goals and the aims of the school aren't uh, mainstream education as we know it. Mm-hmm. So do you do a lot of staff work, staff building, and and sort of agreement on values, that kind yes, of thing? very much agreement on values, you know, very, very much. We all know that um, we're teachers in a public school. Yes, we want them to do well and, and reflect our school well, but we honestly all feel that the social-emotional piece and the restorative justice piece of just teaching them to be great human beings comes way, way, way first before anything else. So we really focus a lot more on that, and then we weave in our academics, but we really just hold such a rigorous standard with the social-emotional piece and, and respecting one another. So um, I think that's one of the uh, hidden aspects of holistic schools that we have to spend a lot of time as staff. If every, if every teacher knows every student, if we're all trying to do this, this event that has an understanding beyond mainstream approaches, then how do we do that together is a big question. And how do we stay in touch with each individual student? And I think staff development is very much underappreciated generally in the education world. 
I would agree with that. And I think that you touched on something pretty important there. You know, we say that they were all our kids. So I'm not going to come to another teacher and, and tell them about something one of their students did. I'll handle it, even if it's a third grader. And I teach the eighth graders. They're all our kids. And I think that knowing some students that I know that are in a more traditional school, they've told me they, after years, they don't even know who the adult helpers are in the room. They don't even know their names. And I I, I, I don't even believe how that could possibly be. Because oh, believe it. It's amazing to me. You know, we switch up classes. We we will lead social-emotional circles for each other. We'll play games together. We'll sing together. We'll lead hikes together. We'll, we will always, because I, I fear that otherwise the message we're sending children is that anyone that's an adult is an enforcer and you have to do whatever they say. And and that, that's crazy to me. No, we're all the, the aunties and the family and the we're all in this together. And so I, we need to mix it up. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them, and I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. This teaching story is entitled, At Court. The wise fool appeared at court one day with a magnificent turban on his head. He knew that the king would admire it, and that, as a consequence, he might be able to sell it to him. How much did you pay for that wonderful turban? the king asked. A thousand gold pieces, majesty. A minister who saw what the wise fool was trying to do whispered to the king, Only a fool would pay that much for a turban. The king said, Why ever did you pay that amount? I have never heard of a turban worth a thousand gold pieces. Ah, your majesty, I paid it because I knew that there was in the whole world only one king who would buy such a thing. The king ordered the wise fool to be given two thousand pieces of gold and took the turban, pleased by the compliment. You may know the value of turbans, the wise fool told the minister later, but I know the weaknesses of kings. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators, and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. I taught a, a course in graduate school at Portland State um, in, uh, about teacher burnout. And um, in the beginning, you know, people think, well, I need more time to hug my cat or hang out with my family or whatever. But to a person, they all said, we don't have relationship with our students and we're not nurtured in the uh, educational uh, exchanges. And that is the essence of teacher burnout. It's got very little to do with issues that unions bring up or whatever. And all to do with, are we, is our humanity allowed to be present uh, in our teaching? Wow. So, um, 
so how did you come to this? What's your background? How did you come to this? And what made you know in the deeper sense of know, as a being known? How did you know this was, this was Marcia's world? It's interesting you say that because all I do know is for here and now that it is. And I'm always curious where I'll take it or where, where it will take me. Almost every morning I wake up. Um, my personal background was the, the classic experience of getting to go to outdoor school in sixth grade. Um, but more coming... In, in, what, in what educational environment? Um, uh, Portland Public Schools did did the state of Oregon's outdoor school, right. resident outdoor school, where each one went. And for five days, you had a high school counselor that stayed with you. You had your cabin groups, but you studied different sciences throughout the day. And, through, and then, of course, you had the magic, the fir- your first exposure to the magic of camp and campfires and those bonding experiences where it didn't matter. I remember I was the kid who was wearing a trash bag because I didn't have rain gear. That didn't matter. It didn't matter at all. Those boundaries were broken down and each person's strengths, it didn't matter who was good at math or who had fancy clothes. It just, it just, it's what was so nice is it took that out. And that magic to me became addicting. And as soon as I got to high school, I requested, I went to the higher ups and I requested that I wanted to be a counselor more than the one week you were allowed to go. And I think I went back for four years as much as I could. I just had to keep up on my studies and then they let me keep going. And then I started just running camps, adventure camps, outdoor schools um, all over Oregon and Washington. And and uh, what I was finding was I loved it and I was passionate about it, but it, it did require a lot of self. It required um, real seasonal work. You really couldn't quite be established. It's kind of a, a little bit of a transient lifestyle, which was great. But there is a time and a place where you kind of want more. And I knew that I wanted to take it further and take it higher and... So went back and pursued, you know, the master's in education and get the teaching license and everything else and just to be able to really take it and take it on and take it to where it could go. And I'd still love to see where, where we can go. That's so interesting. Almost every one of us in one degree or another put in time in different uh, – in closely related professions or really not even related professions – and then something went, no, this has to happen this other way. And many of us went back to school later in life. You're much younger than me. But um, Josette didn't get her PhD until she was in her mid-50s. So that's, that's a really interesting aspect that I'm finding among the holistic uh, community is, wait a minute, there's something more. I know, or there's something consistent or there's something else that can be done and I'm willing to back up put in my time and to take it forward in a better way that's a nice way you just paraphrase it that's perfect yeah yeah that's it's been a revelation for me in listening because I live with Josette so I've, I've been stunned by that but to hear it so common wow I think I could be wrong I also am noticing that nature tends to be one of the common themes that so many of us, we know that's how we all, you speak of burnout, that's how we rejuvenate. I bet you that's what most people are going to say other than other types of self-care, but that we need to be able to unplug from this world so that we can check in with ourselves. And I think that many of us holistic educators are trying to weave those two worlds. And, and we know that that is, that's getting back to our truth and our rhythm and 
why we have a heartbeat, why we're here and tying it in rather than segregating it as so many traditional schools and traditional placements do. And, you know, instead they're rotating children through a language arts class and a math class and a science class. And there's no, that we're not teaching interconnectedness and awareness. And so I think those of us in this field are, are striving for what we know from our heart we need also. And it is true for me that nature is the endless teacher, rejuvenator, and place of presence. Our first learning center was in the Sierra Mountains in California, way out in the Sierra Mountains. Hmm. I would have loved to have been there. I I, I miss it (laughs) at times. I I do. So... um, So what, what, what's your challenge? Where are you challenged right now in what you're doing? I think the bureaucracy is always the heaviest part. I find it the gum I just stepped in. <laughs> I, I find... <laughs> That's a bumper sticker. Oh, man. Yeah, you have these incredible ideas and then the doubters that are out there that want to put these these boundaries around us and that's why I'm always finding it easier to just say just trust me and watch this rather than telling me all of the hurdles and why it can't happen and putting up roadblocks just trust us we're professionals you know and and this is what we know is best for kids and let us let us fail if that's you know then then you can say you're right but let us try and let us show you what we could be successful at and I find that really challenging I could spend my energy prepping more activities prepping things to do with the kids or I could spend my energy doing data and spreadsheets to show you the points gains in certain areas that we're going to look at one time and not again. And I do value some of that. I most definitely see a value for it. But the the emphasis that's on so much of that versus the whole child is sometimes mind-boggling to me in this profession. Well, as a founder, how did you become a magnet school? And didn't you have to make many steps on the gum? Oh, so many. It's been, we've been swimming upstream for a long time. We've, they've almost been shut down twice. Um, just certain things with, you know, if it, um, everything from the school board and, and superintendent telling us we had to be budget neutral. Okay, fine. You can start this school, but we're not necessarily going to financially back you. So if you can do it with that, then you guys can do it. Well, that, that's pretty hard because every other school is getting a budget. Now we're getting a budget, you know, of course, but, it's been quite an up, uphill battle. Um, at one point, they wanted to make us just a K-6. And uh, that's where I was grateful I was tenured because I stood up to my school board and my superintendent and had a public meeting and said, that is not what's best for kids. There's families that want this and we need other options and we need other models and just trust us and watch watch what will happen. This will work. And I'm grateful that that, that did work in that sense that I was able to, to find that strength and do that. Um, because there you go again, just stepping out of your comfort zone and teaching from the heart. But a lot of uphill battles, very, very many still. And just uh, you know, ideally we would have our own campus up in the mountains. We have our outdoor education campus at two locations, which are up in the mountains. But our actual all-day school, for budgetary reasons, we need to share custodians with other schools. And we need to share a library. And we need to share specialist support. So our schedule and our piecemealing things, we sometimes do feel like the, the stepchild of the district or whatnot. We're kind of, we get the leftovers, but we're also kind of embracing that with pride, you know, we're like, fine, we'll be the black sheep. We'll wear that medal of honor. And we like that now. It's come this beautiful full circle. 
So you mentioned that you were tenured when you brought this forward. So had you been teaching as a public school teacher then for a while? Yeah, before we switched, we're in our 11th year now. Before then, I was in the middle school for a long time. And uh, I struggled with that because you had bells ringing and you had self-contained classes and you couldn't take your kids anywhere. And if you wanted to do something, it affected your whole team. They had to also agree to do something. If you wanted an all-day field trip, everybody had to plan an all-day field trip. And not everybody wants to do that. A lot of people just want to close the door at 4 o'clock and go home. Um, I tried to start up an outdoor program in uh, the middle school and it's pretty hard to do that with bells ringing every hour or less so it was really successful and it was it was its own tiny thing but it was just more of a seed I think to see what else we could really do and then this this program you know just really other teachers that brought their talents from their school and their core program and then I bringing the middle school section over and us meshing our ideas just really exploded so it sounds like the um, Oregon's commitment and Portland Public Schools' commitment to outdoor school actually was a step in this whole process of this becoming. I'm saying this because I want that program to continue as much as and expand as much as possible. But it looks like one went to the other, one to the other. Yeah, and again, for me on my personal journey, that was that was the whatever, I don't know, the gem that got me started for sure. Right now, the state of Oregon passed this and now they're working on how to fund it. But ideally, it would I, I be... I voted to pay for it. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the bottle bill might go towards some of it and some of these great things. And um, ideally, every fifth or sixth grader will have an opportunity to do this and, and get outside. And our school, we're saying, okay, that's great. One week would be great. We all know how we feel after a retreat and how wonderful it is. But then we often get back into our routine and that kind of falls to the wayside. So to be able to do it like we're doing it and getting kids out every few days, it's kind of keeping that vibration higher. And we feel really, really lucky that, that now the district's so supportive and now we're able to do that. The transportation's supportive, everything. And yeah. Um, you know, there was a question this morning to the General Assembly about um, bringing holistic practices and sort of into public in public school areas, and um, you've done that. I mean, everything you say is exactly well is very much the ideas around that flow through this conference. But um, what would you say to educators who feel this stirring? and understand that there's an authenticity to be found in genuine holistic education for themselves, as well as the students and the students' families. What would you say to them? How could they go about that? That's great. That's what the conversation we just had moments ago at lunch. And everyone at the table would say, yep, I'm not the spreadsheet person. You're the spreadsheet person, but I'm the this person. And so each person really finding their own strengths. And I think, uh, our conversation at lunch came about from a presenter this morning who encouraged people to think about whom they really looked up to, who they who they saw as a visionary, and and then to find the correlations between their own self and their strengths. Was that and Harapat from Thailand who said that? I think it was. It may have been. I, I hope I and, pronounced your name right, Parapat. <laughs> and to really follow those and embrace those, and you know, for me. I'm, I'm the dorky, playful one on the team. That's my strength. 
I need to feed that and I need to be allowed to do that. I'm not the one who wants to sit there and make the Excel spreadsheet, nor do I know how to. And so I honestly, my message to those people would be to just really, really take it and just go out on a limb. You know, we all know that's where the fruit is. Run with it. And 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 it's okay to fall every now and then because you just, you know, you can get back up. You can find another way and you can try another way. And I know that can sound preachy, but you take it down to the reality it isn't at all it's it's what we would do we would just try until we were successful that's what we ask kids to do every day so it's only fair that we would try meetings with remarkable educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on patreon if you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators please visit patreon.com slash remarkable educators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young and our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Ba Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.